Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Time and again, we have explained the tension in Scripture between the things human beings construct, which cannot create life, and a mother's natural womb. The grammatical and factual expression of God's life-giving mercy in the Bible. Now... In the opening verses of Luke, we find Herod's building project in Jerusalem totally defunct and sterilizing, even for those who follow God's teaching. What can be done? Is all hope lost? Fear not, or as our old pal Matthew said, do not be worried, ye of little faith. The Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 430 of the Bible as Literature podcast last week. We gave an overview of the New Testament canon and the way it fits with the entire picture of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You have the Ezekielian school in the Old Testament and the Pauline school in the New Testament. You have Genesis weaving the Old Testament together around the Ezekielian teaching, and you have Matthew weaving the New Testament together around the Pauline teaching. And of course, Paul is secondary to Ezekiel because the disciple is not greater than the master. The teaching of Ezekiel precedes the teaching of Paul. And for the New Testament, Herod and Herod's building project are a central problem, just like Hellenism is a central problem for the Old Testament and Greek philosophy is a central problem. The construction of the temple and the co-opting and the use of this minor custom of circumcision, which was used to mock the Greek adoration of the human body in the Old Testament, the using of this minor custom to brand people outside the region of Judah to be able to levy a tax based on identity in order to build a temple for Herod's glory, and to enforce dietary rules was a huge problem 
for the Pauline school. And it's at the heart of Paul's argument in Galatians. And here, now in Luke, in the post-Herodian setting, historically, remember, as we tried to emphasize last week, there's the historical context and then there's the literary context. We're still going to talk about Jerusalem. We're still going to talk about Herod because we're not dealing with history. We're dealing with literature. It's the Bible as literature. So Luke is going to tell the same story, but in a different historical context. And at this point in the story, it's post-Herod, post-Jerusalem, in a kind of I-told-you-so moment, as he's once again laying out these words for everyone to submit to and memorize. That is the function of the story, to keep drilling us with these words until we get the point. And obviously we haven't gotten the point, because in 2022, we're still doing the same thing Herod was doing in late antiquity. We are branding people and then trying to tell them that because you have our brand, you should send us your money so that we can build a temple. And right away in verse 5, who do we have mention of? Right away in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. What's interesting to me about this verse, Richard, is that it lays bare the inexcusable but obvious connection throughout Scripture between the king and the priest, which is part of the temple system, the institution of the temple. Remember that Caesar, who's the king of the Gentiles, the other deity, remember that he built his home in the shape of a temple because he expected to be worshipped. Now, in God's eyes, there's no difference between this kind of a prostitute and that kind of a prostitute, but in human eyes there is. So, Herod is much fancier in his prostitution because he dresses it up with biblical imagery. Plays with circumcision, he plays with the temple priesthood, he plays with all this stuff, which makes it much worse than Caesar. But both Jerusalem and Rome are condemned by Ephesus in the Bible. And here Luke is telling you, he's putting everybody on alert that there is a connection between the king and the priest. And I'm going to set the record straight, so take notes. Oftentimes people conflate the literary context and the historical context, and they think that it was just somebody running around transcribing things, and this is what they see, and as they see them, they write it down, so therefore there is no distance between the writing and what they're writing about. This book was most likely written 
after the destruction of the temple, after the destruction of Jerusalem even. The story, though, begins before any of the events that led up to the destruction of Jerusalem. Let's remember that the point of this book, the narrator sets out in the very beginning, that you might know the certainty of those things wherein you were instructed. Okay, this is an instruction. This is a teaching. This is not someone running around with a notepad, just transcribing as many things as possible, just trying to get out the events. This is an instruction. This is a teaching. The author is taking whatever events he may know about, whatever events he may be thinking up, whatever events he heard from somebody else, he's doing whatever he wants. He's taking whatever events, he's taking whatever ideas, and he's making a book. But the book has a specific point, and that is to teach. When we try to move beyond the teaching and get at the historical events, we miss the point. Because this is not for the historical events. This is for instruction. The book itself says this is for instruction. Unless you think the narrator is lying to you. If that's the case, I can't help you. This is for instruction. And it began in the days, as you already read, Father, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea. So we begin with the kingly line. But this is different than what we had in Matthew. In Matthew, we began with a kingly line as well. But that kingly line went through David and led to Joseph. Here we begin with Herod. Why do you begin with Herod? Herod does not descend from David. Herod is an Edomite. And the Edomites were brought in to the Jewish nation, we can even say at this point, the Jewish people, after the fact. Edom, for all our careful listeners and readers, is another word for Esau. It is the brother of Jacob, i.e. the brother of Israel. But they were brought in. But now you have this uncomfortable situation. You have someone who is grafted into Israel, an Edomite, ruling over Judea. Political tensions ensued. We know this from other records. We know this from Josephus and that sort of thing, that this was something that was going on. We know this already way back with the Maccabean Revolt and what we know about that as well. There was this tension because there was this king who was not of Israel, but of Edom, who was brought into Israel in this gray area. So this king always was a political lightning rod. Beginning with this days of Herod, we already know, if we know the historical events of this time, we know that Luke is beginning his instruction with a point of political tension. We can't say, did Luke know Herod? Did they shake hands? Did they have lunch together? We don't know that. What we have is this historical event that's being used in Luke's instruction. Years ago, Richard, I was preaching on Galatians, and a colleague asked me, you know, Father Mark, you're talking about the Jerusalem above. How is that not a Platonic concept? And I think this point that you're making about the writers dealing with an historical setting is the answer to that question. Because when Paul talks about the Jerusalem above in Galatians, and Father Paul mentions this in the Rise of Scripture, he is referring to a locality. In the same way, 
that the writers of Genesis, when they are talking about the Gan, the garden, they are referring to a locality, the Midbar, the oasis in the wilderness. None of this is a philosophical abstraction. This basic point that the Semitic language demands a tangible reference is critical here. It is not that the writers are chronicling historical events, but when they write, they are not writing abstractions. I mentioned Ephesus as an alternative to Rome and Jerusalem because Ephesus was the center of the Pauline school in the New Testament. Ephesus is the Jerusalem above. It's the reference for the Jerusalem above because it's the center of the New Testament school. It's the birthplace of the heavenly city in this school of writing against the kingly cities because it's the city whose king is Elohim. So it's not a coincidence, it's not happenstance that by the time we get to verse 5, Luke, as you would say, Richard, through his or her narrator, is taking a swipe at Herod. They were both, referring to Zacharias and Elizabeth, righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Now, if this were a retreat on marriage, you would take this verse and you would expound for two hours about virtue and humility and righteousness without reading verse 7. And that's why I don't attend your retreats. Allow me to read verse 6 and 7 together, and then Richard and I will comment on these verses. So I'm going to read it again. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord, but... They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. It's the same story over and over again. Your deeds aren't going to do anything. Your righteousness isn't going to achieve anything. It has to be a gift. Every gift that is perfect and that is good, comes from above, the apostle says. It must come down from above. And you think I'm referring to James, but James was forced to submit to the right hand of Paul, who is the new Moses in the New Testament, the intermediary who brings the law to the Gentiles. So James is being forced to repeat Paul's teaching that it is pure grace 
not by righteousness, not by your deeds, but by decree from the throne. So no matter how righteous they are before God, it's not helpful. It doesn't work unless God stirs the pot, unless God intervenes to make a baby. It's the classic story from Genesis. It's the story of Abraham. It's the story of Sarah's womb. It's the story of the deadbeat Abraham who couldn't produce a useful spermatos. Now, the question you have to ask is, why, despite their deeds, could they not produce a baby? And that's a big question. In the context of the entire New Testament canon to this point, it may have something to do with their relationship to the institution of Herod and his temple. This couple is being set up in a very awkward situation. First of all, Zacharias is a good priest. One of the requirements of a priest is that they marry the daughter of a priest. So the fact that she is from the house of Aaron is important. That means that he's right on the money being a good priest, and they were both I mean, so good, it wasn't even enough to say it once. You got to say it twice. They were righteous before God and blameless in doing everything that he commanded. So doubly so, they're right on the money. They're doing everything they're supposed to do. Verse 6 effectively means God's got nothing against these guys. These guys are doing just fine. They're doing everything right. They got everything going on like they're supposed to. And they have no children. God would not give it to them. Ah, shoot. How does that work? Because the human being, when things aren't working out for them, they assume that there's a problem. Either God's not doing his job or you're not doing your job. And this is what Job's friends were all trying to figure out. Was Job not doing his job? And Job was saying that God wasn't doing his job. And they were going back and forth in that book until God cleared the air and said, no, 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 no. It just works the way that it works. Trust me. This is where we get to see again that it's just going to work the way it's going to work. You can ask all that you want. Why, Lord? Why won't you give us a child? Why won't you give us a child? Why won't you give us a child? And I know there are listeners who have literally said those words. You can't blame yourself and you can't blame God. This is how it's unfolding. And like I said before, Luke is using this for instruction. I hate to say this to people who are going through difficult times, but this is really what you have to hear is that even during your difficult times, there isn't your times or their times. There's only time that is in the palm of God's hand. You're having a difficult time. Well, like God lambasted Job at the end of the book, it all unfolds the way it's supposed to unfold according to God's plan. So everyone gets excited about God's plan, except when God's plan looks ugly or disappointing, and then people want a different plan. And Hosea talked a lot about how they go after, they go find another God with a different plan. That's how you do it. Each God has their own plan. You can go after the God you want. But this God, whom they obeyed, was not giving them the thing they wanted, which is the most un-American God ever. Because the American God gives you everything you want and everything you need, and if he's not, you just got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and then you'll get the thing that you want, okay? This God does not work that way. The ones who are righteous in his sight, he doesn't give them a child. 
in spite of the fact that they are righteous and blameless. This is how Luke wants to start this out. So in this moment of political tension, when things were not going well among the Jews, among those of Judea, there was a couple who was right on the money, who did everything right, and they weren't able to have a child that was not given to them. Richard, in this gospel that more than any other gospel deals with the Virgin Mary and her role in the birth of Jesus, in this gospel that gives us the beautiful prayer, the Magnificat, we are being told in the first few verses what we learned from the Gospel of Matthew, that buildings cannot give birth to a baby. Nothing that Herod does, nothing that Herod creates, and nothing that Zacharias and his beloved do within the context of Herod's universe can create life. Only God has the power to give life. It doesn't matter how much you genuflect as a Roman Catholic or how many times you prostrate as an Orthodox. It doesn't matter how many times you bow to Mecca. It doesn't matter how much you fast or give alms. You have no power. It doesn't matter how many armies you raise. It doesn't matter how much fame you acquire. It doesn't matter how holy you are said to be. It's all vanity. Go back and read Ecclesiastes. Judgment is in the palm of God's hand. And if he does not make your womb fertile, you are dead. Herod's temple cannot make a baby. It's just so clear. It's so clear to me, hearing the Gospels in consecutive order, the way Luke wants us to hear the teaching of Jesus Christ from the mouth of the Apostle Paul, it's so clear, Richard, the centrality of the critique of the things we make with human hands. It's not that there's any problem with the righteousness of Zechariah and Elizabeth. It's that it can't produce life. It can't. Life comes from above. This week, Richard, I was chatting with someone on one of my pastoral calls about how one of the important realizations of my ministry is how offensive it is to people when you tell them that life comes from God, not from them. They don't want to hear it because deep down inside, people really believe they are God. That is the deep sin of religious thinkers. They really believe in their own divinity. And that's why they're even more deeply offended when you challenge the things they build with their own hands. They're more offended than when you challenge their idolatrous construction of God. They're more offended when you challenge 
the other things they build to replace God. Because people don't want to submit to God. They want what they want from themselves. It's very, how shall I say, the human condition is really a sad case, Rich. But there it is. And after all these years of being righteous, their time has passed, it seems, to have a child. Because they're both well stricken in years, much like Abraham and Sarai. And so they're not able to have a child. So this is the double the double side. One is that according to humanity, they deserve a child. They should have one. Likewise, according to biology, they're past their prime. They won't be able to have a child. And God thwarts both expectations, both that you deserve one now and that after a certain point, you can't have one. And we're going to see that God is the only one. So we begin with God's ability to give life where no life is possible. And spoiler alert, we're going to end with God giving life to one in the tomb. This is how Luke wants to begin his instruction with the ability of God to give life during this time of Jewish tension at best, tragedy at worst. Thank God that God is God and there are no gods like him, Rich. Amen. It's good to visit with you today. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.